When I hear the phrase levelling up, I unfortunately can't help but hear it in Boris Johnson's voice. That concerns me, one, because I'd rather not hear Boris Johnson rattling around my head, and two, because it makes me just think it's a piece of populist bluster. Allow me to be cynical. Could this apparent commitment just have been a ploy to cling on to votes up north? I'm Jacob Jarvis, and here to discuss this with me is Rob Parsons, editor of the Northern Agenda newsletter. Hey, Rob. Hi, Jacob. Rob, does the phrase levelling up really mean anything concrete, do you think? It does, in the sense that it is the latest sort of iteration of something that governments for years, if not decades, have been trying to do, which is to make our country more equal than it is at the moment. And at its heart, the point of levelling up is to allow it to be that someone who was born in a town in the north, say Blackpool, for example, has the same life opportunities as someone who was born in London or the South East. And so there's that moral case to it, like the fairness aspect of it. Uh, But there's also the economic case, which is that Britain as an economy would be much stronger, much more able to compete with other countries if it wasn't so dominated by London and the South East. Like that, that fact alone costs the economy billions and billions of pounds a year. And it's uh, because the UK is so centralised, so unequal, uh, it really holds us back. So there's that aspect of it, which many prime ministers down the years have known about and have tried various things to tackle. And I think it's something that, you know, the country as a whole is aware of as well because if you uh when I, well, I don't go to watch football as much as I used to but back when I used to and you'd go to a match between a, a northern team or a midlands team and one from the south or London you'd often hear that chant uh, we pay your benefits so even at that level they're conscious of the sort of uh the fiscal transfer like the sort of economic uh, uh inequality between one part of the country and another What was different about levelling up, I think, is that that fact has been known for years, if not decades. But I think what prompted Boris Johnson to tap into it was the particular politics of that period of 2019 when he came to power. And I think he realised that for the first time in years, if not decades, voters in these areas, in your Wakefields, your, your Bishop Auckland's, places that hadn't voted Tory for decades, were closer to doing so than they ever had been before. It wasn't one big, you know, overnight change. It had been a change that had been happening for years, like the, the you know, the Labour majorities in some of these seats had been shrinking for years. But because of Brexit and the sort of schism in, in our politics that that caused, Boris Johnson and his people took the view that there'd never been a better time to try and focus their election winning efforts on them. And he put lots of effort into things like promises on trains, buses, town centres and mayors. And obviously the result is what we saw in 2019, the 80 vote majority. And I think there was there was a sense in the months after that election that if things had gone the right way for the Conservatives, if, if the policies had landed right and they'd had success, and some of these places that had never voted Conservative before could become proper Tory heartlands. Well, you've mentioned things going wrong for Boris Johnson there. Do you think at the start when 
there was a bit of a honeymoon period. Did it seem like levelling up moved maybe quite well then, or was it just promises from the outset, or has it been derailed because of Boris Johnson derailing himself, do you think? To some extent. I mean, I think even amongst Labour politicians, like we've asked Andy Burnham, the mayor of Greater Manchester, about this, and he said even at the time, like people like him who would naturally oppose Boris Johnson were enthusiastic or at least open to the idea of levelling up because of this sort of confluence of politics and economics coming together at the right time. And it it would be, in some respect, in everyone's interest for it to work. But unfortunately, I think what's happened is that, being perfectly honest, it's hard to say that most of the aims that make up levelling up, it's hard to say that there's been much progress on really any of them uh, so far. And I think a large part of that is the pandemic and the cost of living crisis, which have hit the areas, the left behind areas of the country harder than elsewhere. Like, you know, there were more deaths per 100,000 people from the pandemic in the north than there were in the southeast. And, you know, inflation is running higher in the north than it is in the southeast for various reasons. So these red wall left behind areas have suffered more because of these completely unpredictable events than the more affluent areas have. But also, obviously, as you've alluded to, Boris Johnson became mired in various scandals of his own, which left him not as much bandwidth or ability to deal with what is an extremely complicated and intractable problem of of levelling up. I guess it's an interesting sort of hypothetical, if there hadn't been a pandemic, if there hadn't been a cost of living crisis, if Boris Johnson had had a clear run at levelling up, would a lot more progress have been made than, than, than has been? I guess we'll, we'll never know the answer to that. Could you outline the targets that there were and where it feels like we are at now? And do you feel like it's moving anywhere near the kind of pace you might have hoped it would have? Yeah, so the levelling up white paper, which came out last February, as I, as I mentioned, uh, a key part of that was 12 uh, missions the government said that they wanted to be judged by uh, by 2030. Some of them uh, were very easy to meet, uh, you know, saying that pay increases in every region by 2030, which is probably going to happen anyway. Whereas there were other targets like 90% of pupils achieving the expected education standards by the age of 11. That's going to be extremely hard to achieve because there's so many things that go into sort of educational standards and the other thing is to what extent are they actually going to be binding can the government change these targets to make it easier to meet so i think the fact that they're there is great and it means that we all know what the things are that the government is at least trying to do the reality is that by 2030 i'd say if you're a betting man the conservatives there's a probably a good chance they won't even be in power in 2030 so they won't even be there to be judged against these targets and there's a good chance that Labour might take things in a new direction. So I think it's good that they exist. How meaningful they actually are, I think, remains to be seen. With that, in terms of it being meaningful, we've spoken about levelling up feeling like quite a woolly phrase in a way. Another thing is this, uh, you know, the concept of the North. You know, the North is not a singular place by any means of the imagination. Do you think this allows it to be oversimplified and therefore that's why things can be dodged and moved around and maybe obfuscated somewhat because 
it's a thing everyone will agree on. It would be a good thing to happen. But if you don't have really tangible, specific things, you can just kind of let it roll on us and say, we're trying to do a good thing. No, I think there's definitely something in that. I mean, the North is as diverse as the country is diverse. So there's 15 million people who live in the North of England. And, you know, just in Yorkshire alone, you've got a place like Bradford, which is a big one of the youngest cities in the country in terms of its population, but it's you know very poor, has uh, bad transport links, but you know has bags and bags of potential. But then just uh, a few miles away, you're into North Yorkshire, which is a but largely rural patch, has completely different places, different challenges. That's where Rishi Sunak is an MP, and the challenges are completely different, sort of rural poverty and poor public transport in rural areas and farming, that kind of thing. You've got seaside towns in Scarborough and Morecambe and you've got, you know, ex-industrial areas. So it's like, you know, talking about Russia, you can't generalise about the North that much, I don't think. I mean, I think there is a, a Northern identity to some extent. And, you know, there are various bodies that try and represent everything that the North is. But there are lots of different challenges in the north and so it it can be a bit reductive just to talk about the north as one big entity even if you know the north's north's leaders do sometimes come together to try and lobby on behalf of everyone there i think one interesting thing is that for a lot of people if you think of the north you think of manchester it's sort of the biggest city it's it's you know culturally it's in the spotlight more than other places and um i know there are a lot of lots of people who rail against that i often hear ben houchin who's the conservative mayor of the tees valley say that manchester is not the north and he gets quite angry about it and he resides in a, a part of the north that is very different to manchester it's a collection of towns ex-industrial towns rather than one big city and i think he has been quite effective at raising awareness of the kind of of the needs that those kind of places in the north uh, have. So it isn't helpful just to talk about the north as one place. And I think, to be fair, one thing the government has tried to do or has accelerated is that they are moving the people who make the decisions in Whitehall, who work in these different government departments, they are trying to move them so that many more of them are based in the north or the Midlands. There's 500 or so who've moved up to Darlington to be in the Treasury's new headquarters. There's a new department being set up in Wolverhampton. So the idea, I guess, is that if you know people who are making the decisions about policy and about this country live in some of these communities, they will understand some of the local issues a bit better and won't treat the North as a sort of homogenous whole that can be treated in the same way. Starmer has talked about devolving more power out of London, and you mentioned the fact that it would appear he would likely be in the next government after the next election, whenever that might be. What have you thought to what he's said? And do you think that's the right way, that is the right way to go? And we have to have ideas not just be emanating from Westminster about what would be good for these places which aren't here. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's really anyone who thinks about this subject seriously who doesn't think that devolution of powers so basically handing control of the money and the sort of decision making ability take transferring that from someone behind the desk in Whitehall 
to the local communities that are actually affected. That that has to be a good thing. I think everyone agrees on that. And the government, the Conservative government, they say that they're embarking on an unprecedented programme of devolution and that by 2030, I think every area of the country that wants it will have a comparable suite of powers to what the Mayor of London has, whether that happens or not remains to be seen. But I think um, Keir Starmer, I think, recognises that devolution is a large part of the answer. And you saw that in his speech this week, he was talking about taking back control, wasn't he? And, and sort of seizing that Brexity rhetoric, which he thought would, would, I guess, resonate quite well in the North. And as part of that, taking back control, he was talking about handing control of areas like benefits, energy, climate change over to local leaders in the North. I guess we're awaiting the detail of exactly how that will work. And I suppose the reality is that it's all very well to say that when you're not in power. But I think once you're actually in government, which Keir Starmer hopes to be, you're actually having to get into the nitty gritty of how this transfer of power might work. That's when it becomes more difficult. Because I think there is a ingrained desire by central government to hoard power they, they really, I think there's a lot of people working in Whitehall who really think they ought to be making decisions. They don't want decisions to be devolved to local local areas, and they think that they know better about what needs to be done. And so they're having to fight that sort of entrenched mentality, which is not not an easy thing to do. Is there a temptation to lean towards, as you say, these things which are almost like a bit of a PR exercise for areas, and are a bit of a veneer rather than maybe digging into the really key issues. So for example, when I when I go up to Lincoln to visit my mum, the thing that drives me crazy is uh the buses. Just it's you know, so I have to wait forty five minutes for a bus to then take forty five minutes to get into town for something that is a ten minute car journey. You can make the town centre as nice as you like, but if it takes me nearly two hours to get there, then I don't really care <laughs> how yeah. nice it is because I'm not going to go there where it is that arduous is it is that an issue that the amounts of money can't really sustain long-term things like transport which means buses and maybe means quite boring things as opposed to oh look at this amazing fountain we've put up in the city center that makes it look really nice yeah i think there's there's definitely something in that i mean i think the 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 sort of generous interpretation is that the government realizes that it's going to take years if not decades to restructure our economy and you know put the investment and effort into the quite boring things as you say sort of you know in, improving skills and all this kind of stuff that needs to happen to allow more good jobs to come in to create opportunities and that takes a long time so they need to get permission from the electorate to do all those things they can't just say we're going to do it in 20 years time and expect to be voted back in they need to be offering something all the time to the electorate and these relatively short-term projects their view is that this buys them the time that they need to get back in and carry on with the longer term stuff that everyone knows needs to happen so it is in some respects legitimate to have both short-term and long-term stuff going on but with i think with the buses i mean that is a a classic example of something that is something that the people notice and has a real impact on people's day-to-day lives but is itself the fact that bus services in many parts of the north and in you know and places like Lincoln are so poor that is 
a symptom of the wider structural issues. I mean, so with buses specifically, the big issue is that outside London, the bus system since the days of Margaret Thatcher has been privatised. And so it's private operators, not public officials, who decide where and when the buses run. And things weren't particularly great before the pandemic. But since the pandemic, the number of passengers hasn't gone back to the level it was at. And so the the operators that run the buses don't have the income that they used to have to keep services going. And that creates a vicious circle where services have to be cut and then fewer people use them. And then there's less money to spend. And then the fact that the services have got worse, that then has a knock on effect on people's ability to to get jobs. And it just sort of it just snowballs uh, and, and, and it's hard to re- recover from. And that is what a lot of areas are wrestling with. So the big hope for buses is in Greater Manchester, which I'm sure m- many of your listeners might know that Andy Burnham, the mayor, is the first mayor outside London to take buses under public control. So there'll be a franchising system like there is with the trains where Greater Manchester officials tell the companies where their buses should run, how much they should charge. What it means in practice is that if a bus doesn't turn up or if it's late or if there's an issue with the service, there's actually going to be a recourse for the members of the public and the passengers to do something about it. They don't just complain to a private operator and then it goes nowhere. I guess the the, the flip side of the coin is that it means the taxpayer takes on the risk if these bus services start making a loss. And also anyone who's trying to do this is going to face opposition from the bus companies themselves, as Andy Burnham has faced in in Greater Manchester, where uh, there's been legal battle after legal battle to try and get this done. But other parts of Northern England want to do it too, like Merseyside and Yorkshire are looking at this as well. So it could be that taking buses under public control could hopefully be the answer to at least one of those one of those issues you've raised. On trains, I mean, I notice whenever I go to visit friends outside of London that it is it's a complete pain getting further north than Watford, to be totally honest. And uh, I'm not having to do that every day. I'm doing it for pleasure. I'm doing it once every so often. So it's a minor annoyance, but it's kind of fine. Just how much of an issue is that for people have to use these day to day? And then also with the trains, is it that they're that the real focus on links to London? Does that negate the idea that people actually want to travel to places that are not London as well? Yeah. So I think transport is one of the things that you immediately notice when you leave London and go into the north. We were talking before I came on about, I used to work for the London Evening Standard. I used to live in London. I remember groaning to myself when I got onto a tube platform and I had to wait maybe like three or four minutes for for, for the tube to arrive. Like I'd kill for to only have to wait three or four minutes now in large, I think in large parts of the north trains not turning up or being massively late or missing several carriages and then everyone has to get packed on like sardines it's just standard with a lot of services like no one really bats an eyelid anymore but it does have a massive impact on you know on people's day-to-day lives like people's ability to get to job interviews or uh you know if a company wants to set up a big conference or an event in Manchester, but they know there's only like a 50% chance of the train getting them there on time. They think, well, maybe I won't do this in Manchester. Maybe I'll just do it in London. Places in the North are objectively suffering as a result of 
the rapidly failing standards of our trains. And obviously trains across the country haven't been great for a while, but actually the issue is worse in the north. Uh, so the, there's operators like Avanti and Transpennine who still don't have the rest day working arrangements uh, with their staff. So basically train operators have relied for years on drivers working on their days off for a bit of extra money to make sure they have enough people on the on the roster to keep trains going. And then for, for both Transpennine and Avanti, those agreements have, have stopped and they haven't managed to get them back again. And so it means that they're constantly short of staff and it means that trains are being cancelled at short notice, left, right and centre. Because actually there is a lot of desire to travel by train in the north because, you know, it's such a big place, the north of England. It, for a lot of people, the train is the best way to get around because you can cover relatively large uh, amounts of uh, ground in, in a short period of time. And it's that reason passenger levels for trains in the north have recovered quicker than they have in other parts of the country. But the system is is just broke, broken. And I think passengers' confidence in the north trains is failing rapidly. And while we're talking about... That's going to sound way too energetic. <laughs> while we're talking about big events up north, later this month we'll see the Convention of the North taking place in Manchester with speeches from Leveling Up Secretary Michael Gove and Shadow Leveling Up Secretary Lisa Nandy. Uh, Rob, what are you expecting to be said and what are you hoping to be said? You're right. So, yes, it's this big event in Manchester. It's an annual event where all the North's uh, business and political and sort of civic leaders come together to discuss what, you know, the way forward. And they've got Michael Gove and Lisa Nandy, which is, you know, very good, good booking for them. Um, I mean, we know quite a lot about Lisa Nandy's worldview and, you know, her thoughts on levelling up more generally, because she's got a new book out uh, called All In, which I, I've been reading over Christmas. is is a good read, actually. We did a podcast with Lisa Nandy on the book, so I'll point listeners to go back and listen to that as well. <laughs> Excellent. Well, yeah, it's I just, I just finished reading it, actually, uh, a couple of days ago. And it it's a pretty compelling description, I think, of, of all the ways in which our politics are broken and communities like hers in Wigan, are being left behind. And so I think I would expect her to say a lot more about that and the various ways in which various communities have become so alienated from the institutions that are supposed to serve uh, supposed to serve them. And that is why, you know, levelling up needs to happen. I mean, there are there were a few small policy ideas in that uh, in, in that book. Uh, and obviously, we know a bit about you know, Gordon Brown has been asked by the Labour Party to come up with lots of ideas for devolution, and he's unveiled some of those ideas. But I think what we want is a bit more meat on the bones of exactly what Labour would do differently to what the Conservatives are doing. I guess we're potentially two years out from an election, and I suppose we might not hear that until, you know, the manifesto is unveiled. Uh, But I'd like to hear a bit more detail because I think Labour have in some respects and Lisa Nandy has em- embraced the idea of levelling up and said that it's you know it, it is a valid concept it's something that has weight behind it and but they I think Labour now wants to make themselves the party of levelling up because they realise that the Conservatives have not been able to deliver it so far uh, and I think we just need more detail about what they're going to 
do. And for Michael Gove's part, he gave the big speech to last year's Convention of the North, which was in Liverpool. Uh, And it it seems like much longer than a year ago, because so much has happened. Uh, Obviously, at the time, Boris Johnson was Prime Minister. There was a new levelling up white paper out. Things were going relatively well. Uh, And since then, you know, we've got through two more Prime Ministers. The overall outlook has got a lot worse for the country. And I think the perception is that levelling up has moved down the political agenda since then. So I think Michael Gove has quite a difficult job of persuading people that the government is still committed to levelling up because of, you know, the resource that's available to him. He's not going to be able to make any big ambitious promises. So uh, I think what he says will be very interesting. If there were three things you could ask the government to do in the short term future, what would they what would they be? Crikey. I mean, buses is one where the government's rhetoric on what they want to do has not been matched by reality. You probably remember Boris Johnson, you know, telling the interviewer that he he, he makes uh, cardboard boxes into buses. He really loved buses. In in his spare time, and he loves buses. He's always going on about (laughs) them. And he uh, unveiled this bus back better plan to make things uh, much, uh, you know, to make services outside London as good as London's. And I think there's not been as much money made available for that as people expected. And and some areas like South Yorkshire have missed out on entirely. So I think they need to get much more serious about buses and really put their money where their mouth is uh, on that. I think moving further and faster with devolution, we touched on it a bit. Uh, And there are, you know, various devolution deals that are going through. There's this one that's just been signed in the Northeast. Andy Burnham in the Northwest is in negotiations with the government about new powers. But I think that that can't happen quickly enough, in my view. And I think there perhaps needs to be more of a conversation as well about not just handing over powers and pots of money, but also about giving local leaders the ability to raise their own money, whether it's through raising their own taxes or even lowering taxes, more flexibility over the, you know, the purse strings and how they get money. That could make a big difference. On trains, a relatively simple thing that a lot of people have been calling for is that at the moment, it is hard for operators to negotiate these rest day working agreements, because basically they need government approval. I guess it's just another example of how the central government has to be involved in anything. And what a lot of people have been calling for is for these train operators to be able to negotiate directly with the unions to reinstate the rest day working agreement. And I think that, particularly for Avanti and Transpenna, that, that could really make a big difference. Rob, thank you so much for joining me in the bunker today. No problem at all. I enjoyed it. Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. This is Jacob Jarvis. Thank you for joining me in the bunker. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Jacob Jarvis with additional production from Jack Gerbertson, Katja Tomashevich, and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. 
The Bunker is a Podmasters production.